0: Today is a day of beginnings at Woodruff Road. In the morning service, we began a New Testament series on the life and epistles of Peter. And tonight, we're beginning an Old Testament series on the life and book of Joshua. Whenever we approach a serious extended study of an Old Testament book, especially a historical narrative, I need to remind you of several interpretive principles that guide us. I'll unfold these in greater depth as we proceed over the next several weeks and months. Issues of typology and redemptive historical awareness. But Many of us grew up in churches that preached the Old Testament rarely, if ever at all. And they taught that the Old Testament had little value for the New Covenant believer. So what I want to do tonight is I want to set up four cornerstones for us. Four cornerstones that will debunk such a view. And I want you to look very carefully at your copy of the New Testament with me because what we're going to see is the New Testament teaches us how to study, how to interpret the Old Testament. So four principal texts that will tell us what it is that we should be looking for and gaining any time we are are preaching an Old Testament text. The first is Romans 15. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, The Apostle Paul, now remember these are four interpretive cornerstones for us. Paul in Romans 15, 4 says, whatever things were written before, and you have to say, before what? Well, written before Paul writes Romans, in other words, the Old Testament. So when Paul says, whatever things were written before, were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scripture might have Hope. And so, for those of you who think, "Okay, the Old Testament has no real benefit to me," Paul says otherwise. In Romans fifteen four, he says, "Oh no, it was written for our learning." The the glorious and joyful recipients of the new covenant. And then a second cornerstone, we see it in First Corinthians ten, and this has all sorts of ethnic importance and interpretive importance. In 1 Corinthians ten, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, writing to a largely Gentile congregation in Corinth writes these words. He says, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, do you hear what Paul is, is telling these Gentile Christians in Corinth? He calls these Old Testament, the Old Testament nation of Israel that we're going to be studying, he calls them our fathers. So we know that you and I, as Gentile as, as we are, We can call Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joshua. Those are our fathers because we are connected by covenant, by the family of God. Paul goes on and says, "...all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual rock. They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness." Now these things became our examples. So once again, second cornerstone of how to interpret the Old Testament. Does it have value? Paul says, oh, yes, there are examples. And he goes on and says it again in verse 11. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 11. All these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. And so Paul, notice, he's telling the largely Gentile church, in Corinth, that the nation of Israel at Sinai, fourteen hundred years before them, were their fathers, and all the experiences documented in the Old Testament are for our, for our Gentile admonition. A third text, and we're setting up four corner posts to help us interpret this or any other Old Testament narrative, is 2 Timothy three sixteen, and I never get tired of reminding you of this. When Paul writes these words in 2 Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, and he says. All scripture is God-breed, given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for four things. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. What does Paul mean by all scripture? There was no New Testament when Paul wrote these words. The only thing he could have meant was the Old Testament. So when Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's saying that, that we, as New Covenant believers, we should get our doctrine, be reproved, be corrected, be instructed in righteousness from these Old Testament texts. And then there's a fourth principal text, and that's Luke 24. Luke 24, we have the glorious saga of our Lord, what he's doing on his day of resurrection on that first Sunday when he comes out of the grave. And he meets two men on the road to Emmaus. And we read that he explains the Old Testament. We were, Sandy and I were at a social gathering the other night, and somebody said, if you could pick one time in history, one of any time in history, what would it be? And, of course, I don't think well on my feet, so I said something like, you know, when Willie Mays made his catch or something like that. What I should have said is this moment in Luke 24 where Jesus is walking with these two beleaguered believers who still haven't figured out this is Jesus and he's alive. And we are told these words in Luke 24, verse 27. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus gives these men a two to three hour course on how the Christ is seen in every text, every book, every element of the Old Testament. He teaches these two Jewish men how all the Old Testament points to him in prophecy and typology. And so those, with those four cornerstones in place, the New Testament raises our expectations that as we study this Old Testament man, Joshua, in his book that several things will happen. According to Romans 15, we'll be taught and we'll be given hope. According to 1 Corinthians 10, we'll be given examples and we'll be admonished. According to 2 Timothy 3, we will be taught doctrine, will be reproved, corrected, and instructed in righteousness. And according to Luke 24, we will be shown Christ. Now, one example As we think about how will we see Christ, I will be repeatedly, so much so that you'll grow weary of it, but I'll be repeatedly pointing out in our exposition of Joshua, the the framework of the lesser Joshua, the man we'll meet tonight, who's called the son of Nun, N-U-N, not N-O-N-E. I've already been reminded that I had several verbal blunders this morning, even saying that Peter spoke aromatic instead of Aramaic. Okay, I've written that one down, and I'm sure several of others of you whose name are Dan Dodds will come and remind me what the other malaprops of the day will be. And so we will be talking about Joshua, the son of in N-U-N, nun, and as a type of Jesus, the greater Joshua. So I want to just whet your appetite a little bit. With a type, of course, there's always a, a great resemblance between the type and fulfillment. And so let's think about his name. This man we're about to meet, Joshua, both Joshua and Jesus have the same name. Jesus is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua. Both mean Jehovah's salvation. And we're going to see the example in a couple of weeks where Joshua is given his name from Moses. He's also presented as Israel's Redeemer, Israel's Savior, And when Moses renames this man named Hoshea, renames him Joshua, he gives the son of Nun a name that both anticipates his role in history, that he'll bring Israel into the land, and prefigures Jesus, the greater Joshua, who would bring his people into his father's presence. When the angel appears to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph is commanded to call his name Joshua, or Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so we'll see types all over the book of Joshua. One is the name. Another is the issue of victory. One of the steady themes that you see, and as Mr. Rios just read the first few verses of Joshua chapter 1, even then, when the, the baton is passed from Moses to Joshua, it's passed in the, the context of Joshua and nobody will be able to stand before you, you will run up the score on all the Gentiles. You, you will be 35-0. and 0. Victory was given to this first Joshua as this was also accomplished by the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus. God promises to Joshua, we just read it in Joshua 1.5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, and it was proven true throughout the conquest. Oh, but that's nothing compared to the greater Joshua, who says, instead of just, I will win several battles in this little obscure country in the Middle East, and I will be undefeated, uh, in my life the greater joshua says i will build my church in every nation tribe and tongue and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it and then just as we'll see joshua put his his feet on the necks of his enemies in joshua chapter 10 we will read in 1 corinthians 15 that the greater joshua will put all his enemies under his feet so as we prepare to do exactly what we did this morning just as we met Peter, this morning, tonight, we will meet Joshua. And so let's seek the Lord's help and the help of the Holy Spirit now. Almighty God, in your word are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We ask that you would open our eyes, that we may see the wonders of your being. Give us grace that we may clearly understand and choose the way of your wisdom. We pray through Jesus, our only Savior. Amen. Who is was Joshua. It's never wise to jump into a book without knowing the historical context, the key persons, the geographical and political context. So in order to answer the question, who is Joshua, we will not race directly to the book bearing his name, but we're first going to look at his family background and the beginnings of his career. Now when I say his family background, I have to keep reminding us that the people who live around us don't think biblically. And maybe you don't either on this. Americans don't think by households for a variety of geographic and historical and economic reasons. But in the scriptures, the Bible and God's people think generationally, covenantally, and especially by households. What we see in the scriptures, God is primarily working with, by, and through families, households. And when we look at Joshua, he certainly is no exception. He doesn't just drop out of nowhere. He had parents and a grandparents, a family and a tribe. One of the things that has been so helpful to me over the last 18 months is having our intern, Brother Reuben Shanani here. And Reuben is always correcting my thinking and rightly so, and pointing out, Carl, where I live in Nigeria is a far more biblical culture because there everybody thinks by household and tribe. Nobody thinks by individuals, and this is a a culture that is far more in tune with the scriptures. And so, let me point out to you who Joshua is by way of family. And Joshua would have introduced himself this way, by the way. He belongs to the tribe of Ephraim, we're told in 1 Chronicles 7. Ephraim, if you've forgotten, was Joseph's highly favored son. But Joshua doesn't just come from any old family in the tribe of Ephraim. Look at Numbers chapter 1 with me and I want to show you who his family is. He's a little bit of aristocracy if if slaves in Egypt can be aristocratic. In Numbers chapter 1, The armies of Israel are being prepared in Numbers chapter 1, and the Lord is speaking to Moses. The Lord says to Moses in verse 2, "...take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of of names, every male individually from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel." You and Aaron shall number them by their armies, and with you there shall be a man from every tribe, each one the head of his father's house. And so you're thinking, okay, so we're going to divide up by the 12 tribes. There's going to be one leader of each tribe. Who's that leader going to be? Look at verse 10. From the sons of Joseph from Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihut. Well, this is Joshua's granddad. His granddad is the leader of the tribe of Ephraim. And then we read again in verse 16, closing up the narrative they were chosen from the congregation, leaders of their father's tribes, heads of the divisions in Israel. And so, what we will see as we watch Israel, as they've left Egyptian bondage and now they are marching through the wilderness and they're going to have battles to fight, each of the 12 tribes has a leader, a general who is to put together an army from that tribe to, to fight. turns out Joshua's grandfather, Elashama, was the head of the tribe of Ephraim. We are told later in Numbers 1 that uh, when he marches out, there are 40,000 plus men, armed men, from the tribe of Ephraim. In fact, look carefully at Numbers 2. Again, this is all just historical setup for you. This is Joshua's grandfather, just so you'll know who we're talking about. Numbers two, verse eighteen, on the west side, this is how how the, the camp of Israel shall be set up and who will be the leaders. Numbers two eighteen on the west side shall be the standard of the forces within Ephraim according to their armies. And the leader of the children of Ephraim shall be Eli the son of Ammihud. and his army was numbered at forty thousand five hundred. And then we read about next to him the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Benjamin. But notice who leads all three of these tribes. In verse 24, all who were numbered according to the armies of the forces with Ephraim, 108,100, they shall be the third to break up camp. And what we find out as the narrative goes on, that not only is Elashama leading the tribe of Ephraim, but these other two tribes as well. All of Rachel's descendants, tribes of Benjamin and Manasseh also. The point that you should get is, is Joshua grew up with leaders. He had military and political leaders at his table for grandparents. He would have marched alongside his his grandfather, Elasham, at the head of tens of thousands. Joshua was was a direct descendant of Joseph and would have been deeply interested in his great-grandfather's history and remains. Now let me remind you what would have, when when somebody said, who's your great-grandfather, who's the, what tribe do you come from? Oh, we're descendants of Joseph. Who is Joseph? Look back to Genesis chapter 50, and let me remind you what it was that drove Joshua. One of the things, when we see Joshua leading the people of God into the promised land, Not only is he going there because God commands him, not only is he going there because he has a promise of victory, but he's going there on a family errand. Because by the time the children of Israel get to the promised land, they've been carrying the casket of Joseph around for hundreds of years. Look at Genesis chapter 50. We read, Verse 22, so Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So think about the night that Israel flees out of Egypt, the night of Passover. Um, you guys don't forget Joseph's coffin over there in the corner. We've got to take him with us. We're going on a road trip. Well, where are we going to bury him? We're not going to bury him until we get to the promised land. And this would have been in Joshua's home. He would have grown up with the casket of Joseph there in the corner. So these bones that would be carried out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, through the Jordan River, and into Canaan, what did Joseph's bones preach? They preached faith in the promises to Joshua. These bones, every time Joshua looked at that casket in the corner, they would have preached to him, God's going to deliver you from Egypt and take you into the promised land of Canaan. Joshua knew these promises. He knew the promises that God's children would get to the promised land. He believed them, and they made him strong and fearless. And so I want to introduce you to the first time we actually see Joshua in action. Look at Exodus 17, and this is his coming out party in Exodus 17. It's the first actual mention of Joshua in Holy Scripture. And what we see in verses 8 through 16, so we read now, Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, keep your copy of God's Word open to Exodus 17. When you look at verse 9, that's the first time in the Bible we meet the man Joshua. His name, as we said, means Jehovah is Savior or salvation. So apparently, he has godly parents. If you would name your son that, that would mean that you have a deep trust in the God of the Bible. Joshua, as we saw, had grown up with leaders. He had political and military leaders at his table. He would have marched with them at the head of tens of thousands. And we have to ask the question, why was Joshua, as a young man, catapulted over his grandfather, Elashama, or even none, his father? Experienced men. Joshua was given favor because of his resoluteness, as we'll see, his decisiveness, his evident courage. And Moses commands Joshua. Look carefully at verse 9. Moses comes to him, specifically, doesn't take volunteers. Moses comes and drafts him. He commands Joshua to lead Israel's army in their first battle after being in Egyptian slavery for 400 years. Now, I want you to notice a time stamp. Time is very important in the book of Joshua. Notice what we're told in verse 9. Moses says to Joshua, Choose us some men. Any more exactness than that? No, you'll know. Choose us some men and go out fight with Amalek tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. Now, if you have any sense at all about what it takes to put together a battle and a battle plan, your head at this point is spinning. Because Moses has just told Joshua, at some point in the next 24 hours, probably closer to 16 hours, that Joshua is going to be the general of the Israelite army who haven't fought a battle for 400 years. And this means Joshua must instantly make decisions about supplies, Weaponry, tactics, communication, and much more. Because look at the key word in verse 9, tomorrow. I doubt if Joshua slept much that night. Well, in Exodus 17, verse 10, you're going to find a phrase that will be repeated frequently about Joshua. And this is part of the secret of his phenomenal success. Look at these words in verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses said to him. Unlike Moses, who raised objections and arguments about leadership. Remember back in Exodus 3 and 4, where where Moses continued nagging God and debating with him about whether he was to be a leader or not. Moses tells Joshua what to do and he salutes. He obeys. Even though he's totally inexperienced, he had not one days experience in this type of warfare even though none of his men had combat experience or training even though his army were made up of men who were unmotivated grumblers with low morale even though his army was a group of men who had a a servile timid fearful disposition were not the least bit aggressive why could he obey so quickly look what's tucked away in verse 9 and this tells you why In verse 9, Joshua hears that Moses would be at the battle with the rod of God in his hand. In that moment, steel was put into his backbone. Joshua got a full dose of courage. He knew that the rod was the symbol of God's presence and power. It was the rod that Moses held up when the plagues of judgment fell on Egypt. It was that rod that Moses used to part the Red Sea and then closed it back, crushing the Egyptian armies. It was that rod that Moses used to strike the rock and get water for two million. And so the rod gave Joshua courage. In essence, Joshua says, if Moses will go up the hill with the rod and hold it up, I'll go down into the valley and fight. No matter if I'm inexperienced, no matter if my men are untrained in complaining, no matter if we're outgunned, if we have the power and presence of God as is symbolized by his rod, we can conquer anyone." The same faith and courage shows up later when the leaders of all 12 tribes are sent out as spies. By now, Joshua is is standing on his own two feet. No longer is he his grandfather's son. He's viewed as the leader of his tribe. And so he is sent out with 11 other men as spies into the promised land. And only Joshua and Caleb, as we'll see in Numbers 13, are faithful. Now, at this point, you ought to be asking a couple of questions about this battle. Look at our text in Exodus 17, and you're thinking, why does Amalek want to fight? Who are these people, and why are they attacking Israel? Now, a tiny bit of context. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau, who had sworn to Jacob, remember, that he would kill him. And since he didn't, Esau's descendants carry on their father's bitter grudge for hundreds of years. So now Amalek has swelled into a a giant nation. But there's one thing you can always know about an Amalekite. They hate the people of God. Isn't this interesting that even the wicked are covenantal? They think by families. They pass on their hatred from generation to generation. Esau's descendants, the Amalekites, have been stewing in their hatred for Jacob's descendants for hundreds of years. Now remember, look carefully at verse 8. It was not Israel who attacked Amalek, but Amalek attacked Israel. To be precise, we're even told how they did it. Keep one finger here and look at Deuteronomy twenty five, and notice what scripture says about the attack of Amalek on Egypt, on Israel. Deuteronomy twenty five, verse seventeen. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And so what we are told... Um, historically about this battle as Amalek attacks the rear ranks. The people are slow, the elderly, the stragglers, the weak. Even today in Judaism, the term Amalekite, today in 2023, in Judaism it's used for someone who is cruel to the weak, who picks on the elderly. And They did this, we are told, because they had no fear of God. Samuel brings this up and reminds King Saul of it in First Samuel 15. Amalek was the sons of Esau were a hateful enemy their goal was to wipe the sons of Abraham off the face of the earth Amalek were fearsome warriors they developed a military strategy by the way when they attacked Joshua and the armies of Israel they had they'd come up with a revolutionary military tactic they'd been breeding and training camels and they used their swiftness for surprise attacks And even after they are routed in this battle, they keep on harassing Israel. The Amalekites continue to stand in their way. David has to almost finish the job of exterminating them in 1 Samuel 30. And the end of the line for the Amalekites is the wicked Haman in Esther chapter 3. But the principle we're being shown here is God's people will face the attacks and hatred of the world. Why? Because of the antithesis. Here it is between the children of Jacob, the elect one, and the children of Esau, the reprobate one. Look down in the text in Exodus 17. We're looking at Joshua's coming out party. And we see Joshua in the fight. He is down in the valley. Remember, Moses is on the hill. He's down in the valley, sword flashing, barking orders, directing men this way and that. The battle rages all day. There are setbacks and advances and maneuvers, and there are Israelites who die, and many more wounded. And the basic military superiority of the Amalekites is obvious, because the second that Moses' hands went down, they conquered, except when God sovereignly intervened and Moses lifted his hands again. But though the conflict raged, Joshua was constant. Hour by hour, rallying his troops in the fighting until the battle was done. And Joshua's first battle ends in glorious triumph. He's an instant military hero. Look at verse 13. And we are given these words. So Joshua defeated Amalek. This is just like when David slayed Goliath, the enemy of God's people. And so the headlines the next day in the Jerusalem Times would have read, Amalek is routed by rookie general Joshua and his scared battalions. Of course, this battle, like all of Israel's battles, are a picture of the Christian life and the realities of spiritual warfare. We have been delivered from bondage and slavery, and we are headed for the promised land. We have enemies and we must fight the good fight of faith. We cannot be passive. We need the battles of this life to help balance the blessings. Otherwise, we'll become too comfortable and stop trusting the Lord. Israel knew that they were to be in the battle, by the way, because the pillar of cloud that guided them stopped right over the battlefield. And so they knew, I guess this is where the Lord is calling us. No one had to ask, is it God's will for us to fight the enemy? If Jehovah would have wanted them to flee, the pillar of cloud would have moved. Just so, it is God's will that you be in this battle. But your enemies are invisible. Your enemies are not other people, or the civil government, or people inside or outside of the church. Your enemies are the evil one, your own flesh, and the world system of thought. Your enemies will attack at your weakest and This is why we must watch and pray lest we fall into sin. Now, one of the great lessons of this battle is the dependence of God's people on the gifts and ministries of others. Look carefully at Exodus 17 and look at the interplay of gifts that are happening here. Moses could not function without Joshua, and Joshua could not prevail without Moses. And the New Testament, of course, expands and amplifies this principle. When Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 12 and says, speaking of all the parts of the body and says, the hand needs the eye, the eye needs the hand, the arm needs the foot. And so if you're here tonight and you're thinking, I got it. I have all the requisite gifts in me. I have all spiritual gifts and I can minister to myself. I don't need a one of these turkeys sitting in these pews around me. I don't need any of them. Well, Paul says, no, you need all of them. The hand needs the eye, it needs the foot. And this crushes the individualistic spirit of today, which says, I don't need the ministries of others. Me and my family, we don't need anyone. We have all the requisite gifts and armor. No. You need others to pray for you. You need others to teach you. You need others to serve you. You need others to rebuke you. You need all of these people in this room. So look back up on the top of the hill. What was Moses doing? He was not up there acting like the coach in the press box. I would assert, as Christian interpreters have for millennia, that he was praying. The symbol of uplifted hands was the Old Testament model for prayer. For example, the psalmist writes in Psalm twenty-eight: "O Lord, hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands towards your holy sanctuary. How do we fight the battle? How do we engage our spiritual enemies? In prayer. That's why Paul, in the midst of that great locus classicus about spiritual warfare, says in Ephesians 6, that we're to always be praying with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance. One of the reasons why Moses went up on the hillside and stood where everyone could see him was so that Israel would learn the necessity and importance of prayer. If he had not done this, perhaps Israel would have thought they defeated the mighty Amalekites by their own mighty military prowess. The same thing would happen to you if you were able to defeat your spiritual enemies without prayer. Imagine what you would be like, how insufferable you would be, if you had the power to resist temptation and overcome habitual sin in your own strength. You would be hopelessly self-righteous claiming the glory for your own, but God brings us to our knees, where in our weakness we cry out to him as our only helper. Moses' actions on the hilltop were an unmistakable sign of dependence upon God alone to win the Bible. Moses is there holding up his rod, his staff, the instrument of divine power, and by holding it up towards heaven, Moses is appealing to God to defend his people Now notice how important it is to have continuous intercession, prayer without ceasing, showing that God's people have a constant need for the intervening grace of God. By the way, as Aaron and Hur join Moses in uplifting his hands, what we see is a picture of corporate prayer. It's not just Moses, it's Moses, Aaron, and Hur. You have a corporate prayer meeting. Let me encourage you, if you know nothing about corporate prayer, join us this Wednesday night. There's nothing weird or odd about this. This is the source and the engine of any power we have at Woodruff Road. Do you really think any power we have is generated by Scotty and Taylor and Dan and me? Have you looked at us lately? No. Our power comes as we gather in corporate prayer and we cry out to God. It was not enough for Moses to know that God was the provider and protector of his people. Moses must pray pleading with Jehovah to provide and protect. The Christian man must not just assent to a catalog of truths, he must earnestly, expectantly plead those truths. And the lesson for Wood Frode is unmistakable. If we do not ask and plead with God to defend us, then we'll be divided. Our leaders will fall into sin and ineffectiveness. The lost will not hear the gospel. Believers will stagnate. Oh, how great a need we have to be more diligent in the corporate prayer and thus see God winning victories in our midst. Look at the postscript of this first day. Look at verses 14 through 16 of Exodus 17. The victory is won. The Amalekites are routed. They are on the run. They're soundly defeated. But God takes an oath. You heard that right. God takes an oath that even the memory of Amalek one day will be destroyed and be erased. And so after this great victory, Moses engages in two important acts of remembrance. Look at what they are in verses 14 through 16. The first is in verse 15, Moses builds an altar. Moses didn't build an altar to himself or a statue of Joshua, like you'll see statues of generals in town squares. By the way, I have a bone to pick with our statues. If you go from town to town, especially in the south, and you'll find generals there, there's something missing. It wasn't until I went to Hungary till I realized this. Every town square in Hungary, they would have statues of generals, and their dog was always beside them. I thought, now that's the kind of culture I want to live in, where your golden retriever is memorialized forever in a statue. I haven't found a dog statue yet in a square in the south. Well... Instead, look at what Moses does in verse 15. He doesn't build an altar to himself or a statue of Joshua. He's careful to give all the glory to God. And the altar had a name. The name is Jehovah Nissi, meaning the Lord is my banner. And this refers to the military custom of using a pole with a flag tied on it. The name Jehovah Nissi is saying that the Lord himself is the banner. It's a tangible reminder of anyone who passed by this altar of what God had done right there on that battlefield. The patriarchs, by the way, did this frequently, beginning with Abraham in Genesis 12. But then there's a second and even more curious issue, the second memorial. Look at verse 14. The Lord says to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. What was Joshua himself to have stamped on his own consciousness from the day? Joshua was to be reminded that he was an eyewitness, a participant. Why does he need to be reminded? He was there because this event was too crucial to be left to the imprecision of oral tradition. Look at what God tells Moses. Write it down. Write it down for a book so everyone can read it, so we can get our story straight. If Joshua needs to be reminded by the written word, how much more do you and I need reminders? Woe be unto us if we are too big for our britches and think we don't need reminders. This writing, look at it there in verse 14. This writing in a book was for those days when Israel's faith wavered. And they could go back and look at the book and be reminded of God's promise and power. So when they met the Amalekites again, and they will... They would need to consult the book. And remember, these people are their enemies, and God promised to destroy them. I'm fascinated at what God wants written down. This is the first time in the Bible, by the way, in Exodus 17, that writing is mentioned. And it comes up in connection with God's anger at the Amalekites. Whenever you see God say, write this in a book, it's huge. For example, in Exodus 24, God will say, I will write down these ten words. Or in Habakkuk 2, when God tells the prophet, the just shall live by faith, and then he tells Habakkuk, write it down. The reason why God wants this, his anger at Amalek written down, is he wants his people to know that the enemies of God's people will be crushed. There's one profound application you and I need to see from this beginning text, and that is the use of means. God doesn't ordinarily bypass means, such as prayer and warfare, in the accomplishment of his purposes. God gave the victory. How else can you explain this ragtag army of Israel defeating Amalek? But God didn't just destroy them with a word, with the breath of his lips, but by Joshua's sweat and steel in the valley, and by Moses' uplifted hands on the hill. Men died to defeat the foe of Amalek. This truth would be vital to Moses and Joshua. Canaan, the promised land, was to be sovereignly, graciously given to Israel. It was promised in a gracious covenant and repeated many times. So is that the end of the story? Nope. Every inch of Canaan must be fought for. And we'll see that as we go through the book of Joshua. Thinking, Why do they have to fight? God promised it to them because you have to use the means. Well, God promised that he would save a great multitude that no one can number. Uh, why can't he just save my neighbor without me going to the trouble of walking next door and talking to them about Jesus? Because God has commanded the use of means. Anyone who doesn't understand this is a hyper-Calvinist. We believe in the diligent use of means. It's the same with us. God has decreed that you'll be holy according to Ephesians 1.4. But you must battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. God will use his appointed means, prayer, the word, sacraments, and fellowship. But I would warn you against any passivity in the use of means. It's the same with the gospel enterprise. God has decreed that the gospel will triumph, but we must send missionaries and give and pray. We must use the means. The old Puritan Joseph Hall said, In vain is Moses upon the hill if Joshua is not in the valley. Prayer without using the appointed means is a mockery of God. And what we will see, what I want to whet your appetite with, what you're going to see in the life of Joshua. Is Joshua a man of diligent prayer? Yes. But then Joshua gets up from his knees and picks up his sword and uses the means. My friend, what? God is going to call us through as we walk through the life in the book of Joshua is to be people who diligently use the means. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for a pure and preserved word. We're grateful tonight for godly brave models such as Joshua. We ask that as we walk through our exposition of this book, that you would teach us to use the means that you've ordained those ordinary means of grace, the word and prayer and sacraments and fellowship and we'd be content and delighted in them as we use them. We ask that you'd mature us through the preaching of this word, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.